Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors, Macabre Manor, Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. And I'm James. I am drinking my last Bad Elmer's Porter. Yay! Oh, nice. The sound you're about to hear is me getting my fingernail stuck in the tap. <laughs> 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 fucking pop tops. Is uh, Cratchit's Ale, a winter old ale by Indiana City Brewing. It's mm. a lovely wintry, if you can hear it pouring, because I'm using a speaker instead of my headphones. Probably yes. not. So, uh, I, but I heard a little bit. Yeah, cool. It is a gorgeous 8.9% by volume winter ale that I have gotten three years now. And I think last year I actually posted a picture on the Facebook page of me doing some research, the book I was reading, uh-huh. along with the, uh, with the Cratchits actually at the brew pub. Oh, nice. Or it could have been on my writer's page as I was doing research for folklore. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I, I do have, if, if I finish the Bad Elmers, I do have a, uh, a more seasonal brew available to me, sitting right next to me. Uh, so, and that's appropriate, though, uh, that you're drinking something that went, that's wintry like that, because it is winter. And the, uh, the episode we're going to do today, I kind of wanted to do, because the, the album that we're going to talk about, and this should be part one of two, and I don't think this will be three episodes. <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> I, I say that, yeah, and I forgot to start my timer, but I just did start my timer, so <laughs> we'll, we'll, we're, we're going to, New Year's resolution, we're going to try and keep the episode shorter. <laughs> so if that means multiple episodes on the same subject, eh, so be it. <laughs> um, Good luck to us. <laughs> yes, yeah, and and well, I think one of the things that'll help cut down some on the time is, I, at least for the episodes I do that are, are about music, I don't think we're going to do any more samples of songs. <laughs> well, I, actually, I know I have some coming up that I would like to do some, but we will yeah. keep them for my end succinct and to the point. Mm-hmm. And for example, the Led Zeppelin three that will be coming up, or Led no, I'm sorry, Led Zeppelin two that will be coming up. As we record this, the Led Zeppelin 2 that will be coming up, but I'm working on the Led Zeppelin 2 notes. Two, no clips. Three, maybe a couple, because I'm going to play them with the song they're based off of. Ah, there you go. But that, that's for comparison. Yeah. But if it's just to say, hey, here's a song, now you, you bastards can look those up yourself. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Although I may, um, at the end of our outtakes, I may put a little something. At, at the I end of these episodes with two. <laughs> yeah <laughs> there you go um so as you probably already guessed from the title of this episode we're uh, gonna talk about the kiss album music from the elder um Woo-hoo! and and i wanted to actually wanted to do it at this time of year because this is the time of year when i got the album so this is when i associate the album with <laughs> when i listen to it i always think of uh winter it's not officially winter yet as we record this, but the weather is wintry. It's, yeah, yeah. And it's actually shortly after the album was released, um, it came out in November of 1981, and that, that also kind of helps tie into the whole, <laughs> it's kind of wintry feel that goes <laughs> with it. But a, a, a little bit of backstory. KISS had been in a, a cycle of tour, record, tour, record from December 1973 to May of 1978. They spent the rest of 1978 on hiatus, although there were projects to keep the band in the public eye. Uh, They had the the best of compilation album, Double Platinum. They released all four of their solo albums. Uh, I believe it was September 18th of 1978. 
and uh, the TV movie, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, uh, which a little foreshadowing, we have talked about doing this, an episode on that in particular, and surprisingly enough, it was not me that came up with the idea to do that episode. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, no, actually, I have my little notes here, amazingly enough. Mm-hmm. That, uh, tell me that I think it would be good to do. Whoops, let's call Phantom. Huh, it was released in 1978, so we totally missed the anniversary, so whenever the fuck you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that eventually. Uh, so the band regrouped in 1979 when they recorded the album Dynasty and toured in support of it. Very, very cool. Yeah. Jody will probably be talking more than I will be until we get to more things. Yeah. I've just got neat quotes and personal ideas. And that's not the word I'm looking for. And I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the the Dynasty album uh, was controversial. It incorporated disco. So the fans were kind of like, what the fuck? (laughs) You know, I, I make fun of them quite a bit. But I also get, you know, bands are allowed to evolve and or try to keep up with the sign of the times. Mm-hmm. And if KISS wanted to try to reach a broader audience or stay pertinent or whatever, they're not my favorite songs. But I do like some of those disco-y. There are a handful of songs I really dig. Yeah. And the, the, the big hit from this album, I Was Made For Loving You, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the disco songs I can stand listening to. <laughs> Uh, that is, that, yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not publicly known at the time, it only featured drummer Peter Chris on the song Dirty Living, um, Anton Fig, who played drums on Ace Frehley's solo album, and was uh, later the drummer for Paul Schaefer and the Most Dangerous Band in the World, and after that, the CBS Orchestra, uh, were, which were both the house bands for Late Night with David Letterman and then The Late Show with David Letterman. Anyway, Anton Fig played played drums on the rest of the album. Oh yeah, yeah he did. Damn, I I always forget exactly how much he helped Kiss out during yeah. certain, certain points. Yes, um, as a matter of fact, on 1980s follow up album Unmasked, which was also controversial as it was a slickly produced pop album instead of a hard rock album. Peter Chris was featured on the cover, but again was replaced by Anton Fig on the album, who played the entire album. Peter Chris was let go after the Unmasked after the unmasked after unmasked was released his final appearance with the band was in the video for the single shandy uh so kiss hired drummer paul caravello uh soon rechristened eric carr to replace peter chris full disclosure and probably an unpopular thing to say with certain members of the kiss fan base eric carr is my own personal favorite drummer from kiss i liked him better than peter chris as much as i i mean I've always been a fan of Peter Chris's. I just personally like Eric Carr better. I thought he was a better drummer. Huh. You know, I, I agree on better. I don't know if he's my favorite. My favorite may be Singer. I think Eric Singer's a great drummer, too. Um, I just, you know, personally, it, it's Eric Carr for me. Do you want to know why Eric Singer may be my favorite? Sure. You want to take a guess? Because um, uh, he's, I have no idea. Because he's in Badlands? Oh, well, you know, that's a good point. And that's why I, when they were, when they hired him, I thought that was a really good choice because I did like him from the other stuff I'd heard, including Batlands. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when they hired Eric Carr, they did not make him a full member of the band. Uh, Instead, he was a salaried employee. And that affected the dynamic in the band because that meant that 
it was pretty much Gene and Paul versus Ace when they went to vote on something for, you know, the, the direction the band was going. Is, is this where I should jump in with one of my quotes? Um, sure. Oh, I don't think it's even a quote. I just made a note that this really pissed Ace off because he was always outvoted two to one. Yes, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so Eric Carr brought a different style of drumming to the band where Peter Chris had been more jazz influenced and a bit more of a swing style. Eric was more of a straight ahead rock power drummer. He even used a double bass setup for his drums. Yeah. Not like John Bonham. Right. Although if I was going to compare him to a drummer, it would be Bonham. Maybe not as innovative as, as Bonham was, but he was certainly a power drummer. There are very few drummers I've ever heard hit the drums harder than Eric Carr and John Bonham was one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I literally, I would leave KISS concerts and swear that it, the reason I had a headache was because Eric Carr was that loud. <laughs> <laughs> so there seemed to be very little demand for a U.S. tour to support the Unmasked album. Uh, so after a one-off show at the Palladium in New York to introduce Eric Carr, they toured Europe um, and gave, I, I believe, they gave Iron Maiden, who was their opening act, uh, their first shows outside of the UK, I, I think. Um, I know Maiden had toured with Priest some around this time, but I think that was all in the UK. I don't think they had toured outside the UK up to that point. And uh, Kiss also toured Australia for the first time, um, which turned out to be a very, very successful tour for them. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Casablanca Records, Kiss's label, had been recently sold to Polygram Records uh, by Casablanca founder Neil Bogart. Uh, According to Gene Simmons, with Casablanca, Kiss had a personal relationship with Bogart. With Polygram, they were just one more artist on the roster. Uh, Sounds like the big record companies would do. Yeah. And especially after Casablanca was so into getting them. Yes. Yeah. They were were one of the first artists Casablanca signed. And uh, were actually, were, were probably Casablanca's biggest seller. I know that was a big reason why Polygram bought Casablanca was because they assumed Kiss was going to continue to be a big seller uh, <laughs> as we are going to um, find out here. <laughs> so, Julian Gill, uh, who is the author of the Kiss album Focus, said that in 1981, uh, here we're going to focus on, there was, it was a down year in the music industry for established acts overall. In another book, Kiss Alive Forever by Kurt Gooch and Jeff Suss, they note that KISS album sales had dropped 65% between oh. Dynasty and Unmasked. Yeah, that's a lot. So, which is why they didn't tour the U.S. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Um, they also point out that the Dynasty tour and the European portions, uh, portion of the Unmasked tour had both run at a loss. So KISS was bleeding money at this point. Their then-publicist, Carol Kay, said they were divided and she, she meant that geographically gene was in los angeles paul and eric carr were in new york and ace had uh, bought a house up in connecticut gene in his autobiography uh said that at that point in time he was he'd been dating Cher, uh he was ending that relationship and he was uh starting to date diana ross you know poor guy <laughs> <laughs> he goes from dating Cher to diana ross to shannon tweed <laughs> How horrible, geez. <laughs> yeah, I know. And and Paul was dating Donna Dixon around that time. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if you don't know who she is, she's an actress. Uh, she'd been on Booze and Buddies with Tom Booze Hanks. And 
Yeah. Uh, she was with Tom Hanks and she wound up marrying uh, Dan Aykroyd, um, which came as a surprise to Paul because he didn't know they were dating. <laughs> and yeah, Paul he thought was, they were so kind of together, right? Like a, a, a more or less a bit. <laughs> he, he was, as far as he knew, he was still dating Donna Dixon and was ready to pop the question. And the next thing he knows, she's engaged to Dan Aykroyd. Uh, happens. Yeah. C.K. Lint, uh, who uh, wrote a book called Kiss and Sell, he was part of the accounting firm of Glickman Marks, which was the band's business managers. Um, he pointed out that the image in the press at this time was more about their love lives and money than the music. He said the band used their commercial success to stick it to the press. Uh, but then he goes on to say that people in the music industry consider them a joke and over-commercialized. He brings up the fact that singer Randy Newman had parodied, parodied them on his album Born Again with the song It's Money That I Love and points out <laughs> Yeah, and points out that there was a growing fan backlash over the commercialism and the band becoming too Hollywood. Radio was starting to shun the band, and the merchandise wasn't selling anymore. It was winding up in discount stores. Well, it's, so two questions for you. Yeah. Uh, one, maybe not a question, but I know I've read many times where at this point in time, KISS fans were just kind of sick of all the inundation yeah. of KISS merchandise all over. Yeah. And hell, at this time... I was young and not a huge Kiss fan, and I even remember going to Kmart and seeing the die-cast vans and shit that you would put together. Oh, yeah. I remember Kiss. It was everywhere. And I had, I mean, I, I was five, six, seven years old at this point when all this was going on. I, I, I was, being a huge fan, I wanted all that stuff. But yeah, I can understand, especially the older fans, the ones that had been teenagers when they first got into the band, as opposed to a four, three or four year old kid. Yeah, you get you you start to get kind of sick of that shit. <laughs> yeah. So, well, my my second question is, uh -huh. when did Gene start acting? Well, not counting Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. <laughs> not until I think eighty three, the film Runaway with Tom Selleck was the first film Gene did. Okay. But I was just going to point out, Ace said that even after their experience making Kiss Meets Phantom of the Park, which wound up being kind of negative, Gene was fascinated with the Hollywood culture. He, he said Gene was starting to make inroads, or Gene said he was starting to make inroads into Hollywood uh, and was having meetings with Sherry Lansing, who was then studio head at Paramount, and that he was pitching film ideas. And out of those meetings, he had an idea for a movie, which he called The Elder. Wow, that was a nice way to wrap that up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I got a little more here. According to Gene, the Elder as characters are largely based on the Watchers from Marvel Comics, and that uh, similar to Tolkien with the opening line of The Hobbit, this started with an idea that popped into Gene's head. When the Earth was young, they were already old. So Gene thought, hey, that could be either a movie or a concept album. And he was, well... We'll never know about one of those. <laughs> no, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> so as, according to multiple sources, at this time, they were supposed to be making a straight-ahead rock album. Rick Alaberte of Acoin Management, which was their management company, Bill Acoin was, was their manager, um, he, he confirmed that they had said that. And uh, in late 1980, the Kiss Army newsletter for the fan club had also touted a return to hard rock for the band. Ooh, do you want do you want my Bill Acoin thing? Sure. He missed out on Van Halen. He always given the opportunity because he went with Piper, which is a band Billy Squire was in before yes. he became Billy Squire on his own. Yes. Um, now, 
Gene did have some stuff to do with Van Halen. He did produce one of their demo sessions. I, uh, uh, I actually have a little note that says I'd like to do an episode on that. <laughs> well, yeah, and we could, yeah, yeah. Well, but but yeah. you go, I mean, please say yeah. whatever you want, but yep. Yeah, yeah, no, well, that's, I just, it, it wound up not working out. So, <laughs> metal journalist, a radio and TV host, Eddie Trunk, had seen them with Eric at the Palladium show in 1980 and said that he was excited about the new album that they were supposed to be making, partially because he had been so impressed with Eric Carr at the concert. And uh, Eric's sister, Loretta, she said the family went to the show. And, uh, you know, in typical fashion, what fans do when somebody new comes into a band, when the show started, they were chanting, you know, Peter, Peter, because that's what what people do. It is. And I understand both sides. Yeah. Nobody knows exactly what goes on until way much later. Right. But by the end of the show, guess what they were doing? Eric, Eric. Yep. <laughs> that was the kind of effect he had immediately on the, on the, on the, the fans. Because he um, kicked ass. Yes, he did. Uh, so they're supposed to be doing this hard rock album, but manager Bill Coyne says that Gene, Paul, and Ace were burned out and weren't ready to do another album. In his book, Kiss and Sell, C.K. Lint said Gene was tired of writing songs about sex on the road and being typecast as a hulking monster. He also said Paul had described Gene as looking like a walking tree on stage. (laughs) (laughs) He does look a bit like Groot. (laughs) Especially in the Dynasty and Unmasked costume, he did. That was, yeah. Both Gene and Paul wanted to show a softer, more sensitive side to their music. Bill Coyne recalled that the band had considered taking off the makeup at this point, which he was unhappy about because he had spent four years trying to get the makeup designs registered at the Library of Congress. Well, no shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, um, Bill. <laughs> he, uh, he also pointed out that their record contract gave the band $2 million every time they delivered an album, so their business managers at Glickman Marks were pushing for a new album. Remember, they had been bleeding money because the tours had not done that well, and there'd been a big drop off in the merchandise sales, been a big drop off in ticket sales. So yeah, Glickman Marsh was like, hey, yeah, guys, you need some money. <laughs> Again, in, in the Kiss album focus, Julian Gill says they started working in March of 1981 at Ace's studio, which I think was called Ace in the Hole Studios, uh, was in the basement of Ace's house in Connecticut. Several songs were developed, uh, but were shelved. Out of these initial sessions came songs that wound up on some later Kiss albums. Love's a Deadly Weapon wound up on the Asylum album. Nowhere to Run wound up on an album we are going to talk about here a little bit as we go through this one, uh, Kiss Killers. Feels Like Heaven uh, did not wind up on a Kiss album. It wound up on Peter Chris's second solo album, uh, post-Kiss solo album, Let Me Rock You. And, and then uh, there's another song that actually wound up getting released on two separate albums. On Ace Frehley's first post-Kiss solo album, Fraley's Comet, it was released under the name Breakout. Um, and Ace actually wrote lyrics for it. But the, the riff uh, came out of an instrumental that actually features Eric Carr's only studio recorded drum solo, uh, which was released on the Revenge album as Carr Jam 1981. It was after Eric Carr had died and they put that on the album as, a, as, as kind of another way of doing tribute to him, even though the album itself was dedicated to Eric. So uh, C.K. Lint said that the band and manager Bill Coyne decided they didn't need to do an, another traditional Kiss album, but needed to do something important to show the world what they could do. Uh-huh. Yeah, everyone agreed they needed help to do that, 
So Bob Ezrin was brought in. Now, at this time, Bill LaCoyne and the band were starting to drift apart. Uh, Howard Marks from Glickman Marks was starting to have more influence. Bill knew he was on thin ice with the band and was looking for something big to help his relationship with them. So he felt that getting uh, Bob Ezrin to produce the album was the answer. He said he knew Ezrin could handle the band in that situation, so, he, so they hired him. Paul, however, said they decided to work with Bob Ezrin because they wanted to make another Destroyer. Now, Ezrin, of course, had produced Kiss's 1976 album, Destroyer. He had also produced several Alice Cooper albums, including concept album, Welcome to My Nightmare, as well as Pink Floyd's extremely successful concept album, The Wall. Ooh, can I jump in? Yes. Because I got things on that. Okay. So Pink Floyd, The Wall, and, and this may overlap with what you're doing, so feel free to move this where you need to. But yeah, Bob Ezrin, Pink Floyd, The Wall. What I actually wrote was actual pathos, because yes. Kiss is not good at pathos. Kiss is good at sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yes. <laughs> Which goes back to your quote on, I get it, Gene. You're sick of being the hawking tree demon monster who only writes about that, but that's pretty good. But uh, so Pink Floyd actually comes from a much more musical background. Mm -hmm. Most have been taking very serious lessons since they were kids. And they started playing in 62, 64, and the wall was 79. So at that point, over 15 years. Yeah. Or Kiss had been playing just under 10 years by Music of the Elder. Mm -hmm. And Roger Waters drew an actual background for emotional songs, which, you know, that Kiss didn't draw on emotional things because they, they were trying to do a comic book type of thing. Right. That's a good, good point. I'll, I'll get to that in a second, too. <laughs> or, and, well, uh, maybe actually not this episode. It may be in the next one. <laughs> and the, the other thing about Bob Ezrin, because you'd mentioned him working with him before, and the difference between Pink Floyd and Kiss, even back in 75, when he started working with them before the release in, in 76, you said, right? Yeah. yeah. He made Kiss go to music boot camp. And Paul Stanley quote is, for a bunch of guys who thought they were hot shit, it was initially jarring to go into the studio with somebody who treated us like children. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and Peter, Chris, and Ace really, really did not like it. <laughs> well, you know, if you want to do something really outstanding that's musically great, not just rock and roll, but has an extra depth. Yeah. And Bob Ezrin comes in, you listen to Bob Ezrin. Yeah, and that's pretty much what Gene and Paul have always said, that when, when Ezrin's producing the album, what he says goes. I'll get into it here a little later is part of the reason why Ace did not like him, but <laughs> it, it wasn't, it wasn't just musical boot camp. I mean, I, I do remember reading in Peter Chris's autobiography. He was not happy during the recording of Destroyer outside of the fact that he got his song on the album. It, yeah, I actually had a note that he helped with Beth getting Beth yeah, in there. Yeah. Because if it hadn't been for Bob Ezrin, that song probably would not have been on the album. Which is hilarious because it's one of their best songs. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> So unlike Gene, Paul, and Ace, Eric Carr was excited to do the album, sort of. Excited to be in Kiss and recording an album with them? Yes. This particular album, when sessions actually got underway, not so much. <laughs> Shit. Everybody's getting grouchy and like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. So before Ezrin comes in, uh, Paul felt that the music they were coming up with wasn't any better than and possibly worse than the material they wrote for Unmasked. And as no one wanted to write Kiss songs, basically, this is Paul's take on it, they had a band meeting that was decided to do a concept album. Gene said that Bob Ezrin read Gene's short story about his elder film idea and said they should do a concept album. 
Paul said that Ezra came up with the idea to do the concept album first, then Gene wrote, Gene wrote the story. But I think since Gene claims to have come up with the idea while meeting with Sherry Lansing, Paul's probably wrong. I, this is one of the times I will go with Gene because yeah. everything I've read seems that that seems like the timeline. Yeah. So manager Bill Coyne and producer Bob Ezrin convinced them they could wow the critics. And remember, this is a band who up to then really hadn't given a shit what the critics thought. <laughs> Gene said that Ezrin's influence on that point was the first time someone from outside of the band had talked them into caring about respect from the critics. Paul said Bill Coyne pushed it this way. Let's put out an album that makes a statement, he told us, one that shows everybody how talented you are. <laughs> to which Paul, years later, <laughs> says, trying to show people how talented and bright you are is the best way to make an idiot of yourself. And we ended up doing that with flying collars. I've got that quote right here. Let's <laughs> <laughs> mark that one off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, totally agree. Yes. I do too. You're going to, you're going to like this next one too. So Ace said that Bob Ezrin pushed Gene's story and the idea of making it a multimedia project. There was talk of doing a film. There was talk of doing other stuff too. Ace disagreed with Bob Ezrin, Gene and Paul thought it was a ridiculous concept and he didn't understand what it was supposed to be about. He went on to say that concept albums can either wind up great like Tommy by the who or like Spinal Tap's fictional rock opera, Saucy Jack. <laughs> And it's, it's funny that Ace referenced Saucy Jack because Paul calls it their uh, spinal tap moment. <laughs> That's great. And yeah. for people who don't know what we're referencing, just go watch the movie. You'll see what Ace means. Yeah. Yeah. And now they actually have, Spinal Tap has actually recorded a song, uh, which I think was basically the song they do a cappella near the end of the movie. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. They, 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 they did actually record a song that was supposed to be from the rock opera that doesn't really exist. But <laughs> And I think there's a bit more to it than that, but that sounds like a good Spinal Tap episode. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll save that one for another episode. <laughs> so Julian Gill, and, and again in his book, The Kiss Album Focus, speculated that Ace was still somewhat bitter about being replaced by guitarist Dick Wagner on several songs on Destroyer, uh, which played into him not wanting to work much with Bob Ezra. I, I get that, but also, I, I, I mean, Ace. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bob Ezra said this, again, referencing Pink Floyd. I think the elder was a victim of my Pink Floyd era and Gene's restlessness and everybody's sort of aspirations to be taken seriously. I feel like that motivated us, unfortunately, more than good sense. Once you begin with that premise, you start off by saying, you have to do something important. Then right off the bat, you lose the essence of Kiss. And that was a mistake. I take as much responsibility for that as much as anybody, if not more. Because I kind of convinced them at the time that we could do something that would be really amazing and trippy and kind of based on a story that we could make a film out of. So see, this idea of them doing a film <laughs> is really permeating the whole process. Yeah, I, I think they would have gone through with it if the album would have been better received. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cause it, well, and, and like I said, it wasn't just a film they were thinking of, because uh, Ezrin had another quote. We were thinking The Elder as a full multimedia project, making a cartoon, a film, a book, you name it. And if that, of course, appealed to Gene, who comes out of that whole comic book ethos. He was a comic book fanatic and also was starting to do movies and get really excited about working in other media and expanding his profile and his career. So the idea of doing something like that really appealed to him. 
And then we brought in other people to help us out with it. They were really excited. So the, the, the other people he's referencing here, as far as I know, these are the only ones, would be uh, Lou Reed and Tony Powers, who, of course, that's Lou Reed from the Velvet Underground. And I, I really don't know a lot about Tony Powers outside of that he was a songwriter, um, had written several kind of big hits in the 60s, and uh, wound up doing his own solo stuff a little bit later, which I'll, I'll mention when we get to one of the songs. Anyway, they both helped with co-writing. Um, although, again, how much they helped and how much they contributed is up to debate. Well, it's, not just how much, but I, I've got a little note here that, that Lou Reed helped. Yeah. And if you know him from all of his work, he is way more, <clears throat> I've got to do this for the drinking game. He is so much more avant-garde, Chiss. And uh, uh, yeah. Kiss is not. Kiss is not avant-garde. Kiss is no. balls to the wall rock, which is yeah. awesome. That's where they're kick ass. Yeah. So I'm not sure not only how much did Lou Reed help as far as how much, but how much. Yeah. Well, it's been suggested that it was just a song title and a few words here and there. So I, I, I don't know. Tony Powers, on the other hand, actually wrote one of the songs completely by himself. So we'll get to that after a bit. Uh, Kiss had not written their own, like, like a lot of their own songs together as a band for a few years now, right? Yeah, um, probably sometime after Alive came out, um, Gene and Paul weren't writing together as much. So yeah, they weren't, they, they, it was, it kind of had wound up being everybody was kind of going off and doing their own thing anyway. Yeah, because uh, their first few albums, they were a band and then yeah. they, they weren't. So that, you know, having people come in isn't really a huge deal. Right. So much as who and why and how. Yeah, and in all honesty, from this point forward, they did use a lot of outside songwriters, um, especially yeah. Paul, because he Paul started writing a lot. Not probably not for the next couple of years, but Paul eventually started writing a lot with uh, Desmond Child. Yeah, yeah. If you if you listen to Paul's latest biography about the band, he talks about who and why and how, and yeah. it's not a bad idea. No, yeah. Ezrin also brought in the American Symphony Orchestra and the St. Robert's Choir to help record the album. The initial sessions were at Ace's home studio in Connecticut. Uh, like I said, Bob Ezrin was there for part of it. Um, he, he said he it felt claustrophobic. Um, Ezrin was also going through a divorce and was heavily into drugs at the time. <laughs> a little bit of cocaine there, huh, Bobby? Yeah. Uh, Gene said they were just rehearsals, but some of the recording would have actually been done there. At least one finished song on the album was recorded there. Uh, I'll get a little bit more on that later. Paul described the process in a December 12, 1981 interview with Billboard magazine um, after the record was completed. We sat around for six to eight hours a day, and we would talk and take notes before we even thought about picking up an instrument. According to C.K. Lint, he and Gene saw the album as a way of freeing their images from the shackles imposed on, the, on heavy metal groups by their fans. All right, sure. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Ace, this whole time, kept trying to dissuade the band from making the album. <laughs> but as you mentioned earlier, he was constantly outvoted by Gene and Paul. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Ace's quote is, I kept telling those guys, Ezra and Stanley and Simmons, this is the wrong period, uh, wrong album for this period of time. Yeah. In a, in a 2018 interview. But uh, Eric Carr also said, I think it's a great album, but came out at the wrong time way back when he was still alive. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you'll, you'll actually, we'll, we'll get into that 
that, that's a recurring theme on people's reaction to the album. <laughs> so a friend of the band, uh, Bob Kulik, who is also the older brother of future Kiss guitarist Bruce Kulik, said he did not recall Eric Carr grousing about the album's direction. Uh, although Eric's sister Loretta said that Eric was frustrated with the band's direction on the album, but didn't speak up because he was the new guy. Well, he was. He's he's still insecure because, like you said, yeah. he was an employee, not a band member. Yeah. And that made him very insecure about his place. And I mean, that was like sort of a thing all throughout his career in Kiss, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was. It was. It was always a thing with him. Um, it, but you know, even though he wasn't saying anything, Paul says this. He's, Paul. He said, although Eric didn't complain to them at the time, Paul could tell Eric had misgivings about what was going on. Yeah. Ace said that even though they uh, did the initial recordings at his studio, he spent most of his time upstairs playing pool, drinking beer, and smoking weed. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Rick Aliberte, uh, who I mentioned was one of the employees at Acoin Management, he said that two months had gone by and no one had heard anything, although bills were coming in. So he went up to Ace's studio and met with Bob Ezrin and Ace and... Uh, Ezrin played him what they'd recorded so far. He said, I looked at Ezrin and said, Bob, two months in the studio, $300,000, backbeat, rock and roll, destroyer. What is this? He looked at me and shrugged. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. Yeah. So the later sessions were done at Bob Ezrin's home in Toronto using a mobile studio. Um, I don't think it was the Rolling Stones mobile truck studio. So, but I couldn't enough. We'll talk about that with Zeppelin three soon. Yes, we will. Obviously, Ezrin said he was more at ease, uh, but, but uh, Ace was not. Ace said that he stayed home when Sessions moved to Canada to work at Ezrin's studio. So he wasn't even there at that point. He would record his studios at his home there and send them to Ezrin. Uh, but he said a lot of them wound up not being used. Um, Gene talking about this said that when Ezrin decided they would work at his home studio Ace made it clear he had no intention of going to Toronto. (laughs) Bob Ezrin made it very clear little of Ace's material was impressing him and very little would be used. (laughs) Another reason Ace probably doesn't like Bob Ezrin. I kind of get that which if if you're going to ask me what my favorite song is at a later point this will come in at that time so yeah yeah we'll, we'll we'll actually get to that here in a little bit uh paul points out that ace refused to go to toronto but said that even if he had ace was so out of it with drugs and alcohol that he was too wasted to play i may disagree with paul on that a little bit because some of the stuff that i do know were ace's solos i actually like and i think they were some of the best ones he did Uh, i agree uh so gene and paul both point out ezrin's drug use um Gene kind of calls it an unhealthy situation and unfortunate because it was Eric Carr's first album with them. And, you know, and they all admired and respected Eric as, as a, as a person and as a drummer, they, they, they all liked him as a person, thought he was a great guy and that he was a great drummer. I mean, they, he's not just my favorite drummer. I would probably say they all thought he was the best drummer that had been in the band. Uh, I don't disagree with that on a technical skill. I just love yeah. Badlands so much as were my choice. Oh, yeah. No, I, I – yeah, I get that because Badlands was a great band. And like I said, Paul also had pointed out Ezrin's drug use. He, he said it became quickly noticeable and, and got to the point that Ezrin was absent a lot uh, because he wasn't showing up. They got behind schedule. Uh, he said that he and Gene started working separately so they could catch up, and uh, they just 
send Ezra in the tapes and he'd just send tapes back with feedback notes on his with his feedback on them. And uh, according to Paul, they finished recording in September of 1981. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. I don't yeah. have that note, so sure. Yeah. Why, why, why? So, yeah. Okay, so trying to keep this episode short. I <laughs> <laughs> um, actually already ran past the time I had originally allotted for this, so we are going to probably turn this into three episodes. <laughs> well, most assuredly, my good man. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to wrap this one up. With the next episode, we'll get into the actual songs on the album and uh, some of the, the stuff that happened when it was released and uh, go from there. So Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. In that case, uh, we will wrap this up. I'm Jody. Like a Christmas present. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> it's December 8th and I'm drinking a Cratchit Old Ale. True. And I'm James. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, don't be wrapping me up like a Christmas present, damn it. <laughs> I'm not wrapping you up like a Christmas present. Oh, okay. <laughs> I may give Jackie a dick in the box, but, you know. <laughs> I'm leaving that in, fucker. <laughs> Perfect. Leave it in or at least put it in the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. No. <laughs> <laughs> she said outtakes, not out. No, never mind. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> see you later. Bye. <laughs> The Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. Oh, gracious. Although, maybe I should pee right before we start recording, so... Sure. You can do our usual stupid crap first. <laughs> yeah. Hell, yeah. yeah, I may be talking about four beers by the time we're done today. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a type of beer, right? Uh, it's uh, spelled a little different. Oh, well, yeah. all right. Pretty sure that's not what, unless Paul was in love with a type of beer. It's <laughs> We've all been there, Paul. You can admit it. Oh, another really interesting thing. When he joined the band, there were three members of the band with the name Paul, but only two of them had Paul on their birth certificate. <laughs> and neither of those two went by Paul in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Stanley was, it's uh, Stanley Burt Eisen is his birth name and then paul fraley went by ace because paul stanley was already in the band <laughs> yeah and and then as eric carr had to had to change his name too and out of these initial sessions came the songs uh, came songs that waiter yeah let me start that over did uh, real quick did, didn't the kiss all four of them just do their solo albums right before this too like yeah yeah I, I mentioned that yeah it was uh, september 78 september so okay thanks i yeah I, I knew you'd mention it, and then I kind of, ha, ha, ha. I <laughs> must have been drinking my beer when you, <laughs> you probably were.